You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Monday, April 30th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, the Taubman Center for State and Local Government, and the Institute of Politics hosted a conversation with former Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter. David Margley, Executive Program Director for the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative, moderated. Let's listen in. I've gotten to know Mayor Nutter a little bit through the, through the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative, where he served as and both really as an advisor to us in helping us think through a lot of our programming as well as to uh, participants in our programs, so other mayors from from around the country. And you know, since being mayor, in addition to his work with us, uh, Mayor Nutter's been doing a lot of that. Um, <laughs> Uh, traveling the country and advising many mayors across the country. Um, he's served as senior fellow to the What's Work Cities program, which is um, also, like the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative, is sort of part of the, uh, the portfolio of, of Bloomberg Philanthropies, Government Innovation. Yeah. Bloomberg sure. Universe. <laughs> the Bloomberg Universe. Yeah. Um, we are all beneficiaries of the Bloomberg Universe, and uh, and or we are both beneficiaries. Yeah. Of, we are all beneficiaries of the Harvard Universe, and um, uh, and has also served on the Homeland Security Advisory Council, and is now teaching as a professor of practice at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. And so, um, really, thought of as an expert on many issues associated with being mayor by many. And let me tell you a little bit about. Um, why, when Mike Nutter speaks, that we and mayors around the country listen so attentively. So, uh, after serving almost 15 years in the Philadelphia City Council, uh, Mayor Nutter, Michael Nutter, was elected the 90th mayor um, of his hometown of Philadelphia in November 2007 and took office in January 2008. Philadelphia, as most of you know, I'm sure, is the fifth largest city in the country at a uh, with a population of a, a little over a million and a half. And when he took office, uh, Philadelphia is plagued with many of the problems that call many of us here to public service. And he, he set an ambitious agenda um, that he held to, including lowering crime and improving educational attainment rates and making Philadelphia a green city, as well as attracting um, new businesses and residents. Let me give, give you all some statistics to give you a sense of uh, what transpired under Mayor Nutter's eight years in office. Um, homicides were at a 50-year low uh, at the end of his tenure. High school graduation rates went from 53% to 68%. After 60 years of population decline, Mayor Nutter provide, presided over eight straight years of population growth, um, including what is now the largest percentage of uh, millennial population growth in the U.S. In fact, in 2007, Philadelphia was holding on to about 28% of uh, non-native uh, Philadelphia college students. In 2015, that figure was almost half. Um, in spite of the Great Recession... Not, not half of 28, half of 100. Right. They should have just said like 49%. Like 49, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. People That's are like, good. huh, what? We're going to talk about We're bragging precision about in, in data later. Um, and the, in spite of the Great Recession, he stewarded Philadelphia's finances to the point that it had its best bond rating in 40 years. And uh, from about 2014 to the end of his term, more than $11.5 billion of economic development projects were completed. 
um, or under construction or announced. I was in Philly last week, and you still see quite a, quite a few cranes at work there. And uh, on the green agenda, municipal energy sources saw a 15% decrease in carbon emissions. Uh, the overall city saw a decline in carbon emissions at a time that economic activity rose significantly, which is not easy to do. And alternative uh, electricity usage, uh, or electricity usage from alternative sources climbed from 2.5% to to 15 percent. Um, so those are some really impressive numbers. And even, even with these accomplishments, some of the things that I've heard the mayor speak about as his greatest successes are a little bit more process-oriented. He's talked uh, often about planning and setting and leading to a vision mm -hmm. and leading a focus on ensuring an ethical and transparent government, providing high-quality, efficient, and effective customer service, and building an outstanding team and staff. And so let's let's start there with uh, with the team. And, so yeah. and a lot starts with the team. So what yeah. you know what mattered to you in establishing your team? Well, David, first, thank you, and thank you all uh, for being here, and certainly Raphael, uh, and all the folks here at Harvard, uh, Steve Goldsmith, and um, a couple folks that uh, that I just met, uh, uh, Melissa and Kate. Um, you know, people make all the difference. Uh, your team really does make all the difference, and I guess I would start by saying, you know, there are some uh, who go into public service, uh, people go in for a variety of reasons, uh, they want to make things better, they want to serve the public, uh, or you have some who just, you know, basically kind of want to feed their, their own ego, uh, and, um, you know, it's kind of all about them. Um, I was raised in an environment where it was primarily a focus on servant leadership, uh, went to Jesuit high school uh, and understood the concept of, of being, at the time, a man for others now, you know, be a person for others. Um, and so community engagement, uh, trying to help people in communities is really something that is within me. And I also understood uh, very quick, quickly and, and early that your greatest successes uh, generally will not come from your singular efforts. Uh, and so I tried to construct a team. Usually when you come into the mayor's office, uh, most of the top, top level people uh, from a previous administration have left uh, for whatever reason. Um, and I kept some folks. Uh, I got to know them as a member of city council and declined, I guess, uh, to make offers to, uh, to some other people. I knew uh, that Philadelphia, unlike a number of uh, big cities, our crime rate was still going up uh, in the early 2000s compared to a bunch of other cities that were going down. The police commissioner uh, who served with my predecessor had already announced that he was going to retire at the end of the year. So I knew I needed a new police commissioner. Uh, we had no permanent commissioner of our Department of Human Services. That's our child welfare. Uh, agency. It was being overseen by someone who already had a massive uh, job. And there were a number of other positions. And so, um, you know, quite frankly, taking a page from uh, the namesake of the school, uh, we put out a call, uh, literally in the words of John Kennedy, uh, that we were looking for the best and brightest uh, to come into government. Uh, we did uh, not just talked about national searches, but we put information out nat nationally. Uh, and got somewhere over 3,000 applications from across the United States of America, people wanting to come into a new government. I ran as a reform candidate. I had a record of reform. We had serious uh, uh, corruption-related issues uh, in, in um, 
uh, in my predecessor's administration, nothing specifically with with the uh, prior mayor, but you know, about 20 people were indicted and for various things and, and went to jail. And so, I ran on the premise of a safer city, public safety, a smarter city. You talked about the high school graduation rate and the college degree attainment rate, both of which were much lower than they should be for a city the size of Philadelphia. A uh, sustainable uh, city with uh, economic opportunity. Uh, and a uh, fourth uh, pillar, if you will, uh, was that we were going to run the government with uh, transparency and integrity. Uh, I hired uh, two uh, folks who were friends. I did not know them. Um, but they were retiring uh, assistant U.S. attorneys. Mm -hmm. And so on the ethics issue, created a new office called the Chief Integrity Officer, uh, which was modeled after uh, corporate uh, chief compliance officer, uh, came out of the Sarbanes-Oxley legislation because of issues in the corporate community. Uh, that person's office was placed, uh, I placed their office next to mine to send a message to people in the government. They were authorized to go into any meeting at any time for any reason, look at any document, and everyone had to cooperate. Um, the mayor of Philadelphia at the time, this is about to change in a couple months, but at the time, was not directly in charge of public education. Mm -hmm. uh, the state, in their wisdom, uh, <laughs> he says facetiously, um, took over the public education system in 2001. Um, and displaced our then Board of Education and created a new school reform commission made up of five members, three appointed by the governor, two by the mayor. I think generally every fourth grader knows that three is greater than two. Um, and so the mayor is not directly in charge, but I took the position that these are my kids uh, and it's my city and therefore I have a responsibility and an obligation uh, to make sure they get a high quality education. In addition to the fact that my own daughter uh, was in uh, public school as well. Um, but public safety really is the number one responsibility of any government, uh, local, state, or, or federal. Uh, and I was fortunate uh, to get uh, who I thought would be and turned out to be uh, the best police commissioner in the United States of America, uh, Chuck Ramsey. Uh, grew up in D.C., grew up in Chicago, served there, went to D.C., was the chief, and then uh, had a little bit of a break in service, and I was able to, uh, to get him. And so, Putting a team together, um, whether it's the mayor's office or the overall structure of the government, yeah. is critically important to any success that you're going to have. So, so let's talk about that. So you put your team together. Yeah. And you have, so uh, it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big government. Four, yeah. About a what, four and a half billion dollar budget. Yeah. About right. Uh, in the executive, so. uh, but I mean, uh, yeah. just I guess the general stats are um, about. $7.8, $7.9 billion in overall revenue, 28,000 employees. If we were a Fortune 500 company, we'd be the 360th largest corporation in the United States of America. So, it's a CEO so job. That's You're CEO running job. a business enterprise. That is big. Yeah. And, and, and so when you think about the dynamics of managing mm -hmm. the organization, mm -hmm. right? you talked about the attributes of some of the people that you brought on. Right. What, what are some of the things that you learned that you wish you knew when you'd started? Yeah. Um, well, I think the biggest is I wish I knew the recession was coming, uh, but uh, no one told me about that. Um, so uh, Philadelphia, I guess much like Boston uh, and some other uh, cities, very heavily democratic city. We may or may not talk about politics. depends on uh, 
what you want to do. Um, but it's a very heavily Democratic city. So, um, uh, and we have a uh, partisan primary uh, in May and then the general election in November. In Philadelphia, if you win the Democratic primary, unless you are indicted and convicted, uh, more, you are more than likely, you will go on and be uh, uh, successful. And so in that time in between, so I won the primary, uh, which I wasn't supposed to do, because um, no one thought I had any chance of winning. Um, but I did not want to waste that period of time, because I thought I had a pretty decent chance of winning in November. And so um, I went to two cities uh, to see uh, veteran mayors, uh, to try to learn some things from them about structure of government, how to manage big operations. And so um, I went to New York. Uh, and met for the first time uh, Mayor Mike Bloomberg, uh, and I went to Chicago and met uh, Mayor Daley. I knew neither of them, uh, and they had no reason to know me, but through relationships and calls or whatever, both saw me. Um, and actually, the structure that we used uh, in Philadelphia was a bit of a combination. It was bits and pieces of both New York and Chicago's models. Uh, we completely restructured the government in contrast to the way it's laid out mm -hmm. in our Philadelphia Home Rule Charter. Uh, I, what were the things you were trying to do as, as you were uh, I was looking for efficiency and that uh, we lined up our departments in a way that uh, we used the deputy mayor structure. The deputy mayor would have four or five agencies under his or her jurisdiction because they were all related, they were connected in some way, shape, or form, and we wanted all of those agencies to get the same message from the top person. Mm. And so we had you know, weekly meetings with what we called our core group. It's 12 of us sitting around the table. These are the top leaders in the entire government. We're basically in charge. And um, you know, it was constant feedback, uh, but I wanted the agencies to get the correct message and the right message, not in typical fashion in government. A lot of whisper down the lane. Place couldn't run if it were not for rumor, innuendo, and sometimes just outright wrong information. So we wanted people to, to be well informed. But I also picked people, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, sports may not be the best analogy, but um, you need a group of people who actually can get along with each other. That doesn't mean there won't be conflict. Uh, I mean, beyond this one doesn't like that one. I mean, just differences of opinion and, and public policy differences and, and views, but just could get along, would be on the same page. Uh, and we realized, because of the recession, just how important mm -hmm. uh, that was, uh, because it was it was a harrowing uh, trial by fire experience. Yeah. So let's, let's actually talk about the impact of the recession in in the following way. Yeah. I've heard Mike Bloomberg say this, right? You, the sort of the the interview for you know, the mayor, if you will, right? The election. You're mm -hmm. talking about I'm going to come in. I'm going to do A, B, and C. Sure. Right? Absolutely. And you get elected. Also and known as you, campaign you know, you promises. You're A, B, and C, yeah. right? Safer, yeah. smarter, uh, sustainable. Right? Maybe D, integrity, integrity. Right. And then, yeah. then boom, you're in. D, yeah. and F happen. Uh, you know, a building collapses. The the Great Recession happens. Yeah. Flash mobs happen. Yeah. How do you, how do you get to do A, B, and C when sure. all of these things are are happening? Right. Well, uh, part of it is, uh, again, when you have really great people and really great managers, I mean, you just try to keep your team focused um, and not get distracted by all the noise out there. Um, you also know, you know, and we actually cataloged, because, uh, again, we 
borrowed this idea from, uh, from New York. We cataloged all of the promises that I made. We looked at every one of our policy papers. We put out 12 policy papers that had footnotes and bibliographies. It was, I mean, it was insane, the kind of stuff that we were doing, and because we wanted to keep track. Yeah. But the reality is, I mean, you can't do it all at one time. I mean, there are some fundamentals. I mean, people are excited that you got elected, but they still would like their trash to get picked up and potholes filled and street lights to work and some professional to show up uh, when they call 911, either police or fire. Uh, they're going to be treated with dignity and respect. Um, you have some basic goals. Yes, we are going to try to reduce crime, but, you know, how do you do that? Oh, we wanted to hire 400 more police officers. Oh, but there was a recession. So, therefore, not only did I not hire them, I canceled the classes to save money. Um, but even in that first year, I mean, we had a 15% reduction in homicides without the 400 additional police officers. And that's, I think that's about focus, that's about effort, that's about commitment. Um, you know, mayors get to give six, eight, ten speeches a day. And every speech that I gave had one or more of those four themes infused in the speech. Because we were really trying to change the mindset of our public employees and the citizens. Yeah. And set some expectations and set some goals. And so what were the things that you found you had to do to create the conditions for your team to deliver on that agenda? Yeah. Well, um, so some of you may be thinking about public service. You may or may not want to uh, uh, use, uh, use this model. So, you know, one of the most incredible opportunities you ever have, certainly as an executive, uh, is that first, hopefully if you want to, there's a second, but that first, I mean, you're guaranteed at least one inauguration. You won. You get to at least have one. And that will be one of the most important speeches and moments that you'll ever have. Because mm -hmm. it really does set the tone. You know, as they say, you know, you don't get a, what is it, a second chance to make a first impression. Right? I mean, this is, this is it. This is, you know, Carnegie Hall. It's the, it's what, it's the Super Bowl to some extent, even though they have them every year. When I met with Mayor Daley, he talked about the greening of Chicago and the beauty and trees and flowers and all that. I mean, he spent a lot of time on that. I got, I got the message. Um, and out of that, um, <laughs> he's just wonderful. Um, but out of that, I decided that I wanted to set a goal of Philadelphia being the number one green city in America. Yeah. My staff found out about that goal at the inauguration. I mean, I've been talking about green in the city and doing that, but I mean, it was not written in the speech, but I wrote it in the margin because I wanted to deliver that message. I said that we had to reduce homicides by 30 to 50 percent in a five to six year period of time. They were hearing, they were hearing these, I was putting down markers that day, cut in half our high school dropout rate, double our college degree attainment rate, setting goals, and uh, A, I'm not in charge of public education, I'm certainly not in charge of higher education at all, right. but setting goals and driving toward those goals. And, you know, we made progress. We achieved some. We didn't achieve some others. Um, and, again, in the meantime, the fund, you still have to, you know, in sports analogy, you still have to block and tackle and do all the regular things. I mean, you get no points for picking up trash and filling potholes or moving snow. And, I mean, that's, just, that's like automatic. That's what I pay my taxes for. I mean, I heard that a million times. And so keeping that team motivated, changing the mindset of public employees. Uh, there's a group in public service uh, that we often refer to as the B team, uh, and, and it has nothing to do with their status. It's, we'll be here when you get here, we'll be here when you leave. And they actually run the government. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, they make it they make it happen all the time. And so, again, in a place like Philly, unlike in Boston, you know, we have term limits. And so it's two four, you can do a max of two four-year terms. And you know, if you don't have that good relationship, it just kind of waits you out. Yeah. You know. And so, what do you think are the most important things in improving sort of the the sense of the possible? of the yeah. big team, right? So, so right to the next yeah. person who comes in has the benefit of a higher functioning yeah. government. Well, it's really about setting not only some goals and standards, but also painting a picture of what could be. I mean, realistic, not, you know, not, you know, some unbelievable mosaic, but, and really tying, we're doing A to accomplish B to ultimately get to C, right? So, we're making these changes in deployment because we found by using data early, uh, when I, I charged Police Commissioner Ramsey with delivering a new public safety plan in 30 days. It was the first action I took after the inauguration. I promised the community, I promised the citizens that I would declare a crime emergency because we had an emergency. And within that, it said the police commissioner has to develop a new crime fighting strategy in 30 days. At the time, we had 23 police districts. They may be precincts here in Boston, I don't, but they're the same. Out of the 23, we found that 65% of our homicides were in nine of those 23 police districts. But for the most part, the districts usually pretty much had the same number of officers. They're about the same size, give or take, you know, a couple square miles here and there. We had to redeploy our officers. I mean, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out you want to put more officers where there's more criminal activity and, you know, a few less, but not to make the community dangerous. And explain to the public, you will not be endangered, but we really need to move these folks around and deploy them in a different kind of way and still maintain public safety in your community. We talked about it and talked about it and talked about it and talked about it, but it wasn't until we, you know, the end of that year could show real results that you were not less safe and we had actually made other parts of the city safer as a result of doing this. Uh, that, um, you know, changing uh, what kinds of vehicles we sent out uh, for sanitation service or big snowstorms or, you know, all of these kinds of things where people are always worried, you know, whether they like the service they're getting or not, they're always worried they're going to get less based on some change. Now, I don't know about Boston, it's probably very different, but people in Philadelphia, you know, they really love change. Um, and they love it as long as things can stay the same. <laughs> then they're really for it, right? So we, we had to bring about a lot of change, and then the recession hit. Yeah. And that, quite frankly, no pun intended, that really changed everything. Sure, sure. So I have about a dozen more questions I could ask you, mm -hmm. and it's probably that would not make me it doesn't endear me to the room. So no, it so, um, I'm going to open it up to questions. Uh, I'm going to reserve the right to follow up and ask a few. Yeah. But uh, sure. I know a lot of people here are really excited to, uh, Thank to you. ask I you hope. a few things. Thank you so much for being here. And Thank you. Here's a microphone. For your wisdom. I have a question for you based on something present, obviously, the Starbucks situation. Mm -hmm. The police commissioner came out the day later and basically cleared out the whole police department without really knowing all of the facts around yeah. it. Not only that as a mayor, yeah. what's your impression of that and what should have been done sure. different than that? Well, uh, 
I mean, there are, there are uh, in my view, a series of bad judgments that were made pretty much every step along the way. Uh, the first of which was uh, the then manager, person who doesn't work there anymore, doesn't work for the company anymore, um, should not have called the police in the first place. Right? Um, a little bit of backstory information, which I think has not gotten out very far, and maybe it doesn't change anything, but context. So, uh, I mean, if you know Philadelphia, if you know that particular area, it's right off of Rittenhouse Square and all of that, all that goes with that and, and you know, who lives there and all of that. But it's also an area that attracts a significant number of folks who maybe are um, uh, temporarily without a home, put it that way. Uh, who, and this is not a particularly big store, uh, who come in, take up space, go to sleep, blah, blah, blah. It's one. Two. Um, we're all very familiar, unfortunately, with the level of uh, crisis in many, many cities as it relates to opioid epidemic. Uh, any number of folks have almost overdosed in the bathroom uh, at that particular store, uh, which is why they then put a keypad on it in the first place and adjusted their singular policy at that store, which is not a company policy, about if you come in, you have to be a paying customer to use the bathroom, which is how this whole thing got started. Um, the police should have never been called in this particular instance. If you saw the video, they then arrive. But what you don't know at the time, and I'm not criticizing the police commissioner, but it's in the context of your question, and he probably did not know that the dispatcher sent the officers with the following information. There's a group of men and a disturbance at the Starbucks, both of which are wrong. I don't want to be too technical, but I think two is a couple, not a group. And there was no disturbance. The only thing they were doing was not buying anything. So if you really look at the video closely, you'll also see that the three officers all have helmets on. <clears throat> it's not because police officers in Philadelphia run around with helmets on. Those are bicycle officers who are especially trained to do a variety of different things. And at that point, I think there was just confusion as to what to do, which is why they then called a supervisor, who should have gone over to the store manager and basically said, what, what is this? What, I mean, what, right? Because part of your training generally is de-escalation, right? So there is no disturbance. It's not a group. What is the story here? Well, I've got two guys. They don't want to buy anything. They say they're waiting for their friend. Their friend hasn't arrived yet, and that's our policy. Okay. Why don't we wait a little while and see if the friend comes? Right. Literally. Right. That's the thing. Right. So, officers like exit. Maybe somebody hangs out if in case something does jump off. Right. Um, all this conversation going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They don't know what to do. But if you notice, and I'll end with this. The bicycle officers did not make the arrest. The subsequent two uniform officers, other uniform officers, the bike cops have uniforms on, but different officers. Because they now got to transport, and the bike cops can't transport folks on a bike, right? So, I mean, just a series, a cascade of bad decisions all the way around without anyone saying for a moment, let's think about this. Because the end result should not be arresting someone for not buying something in a store. When we know people do that all the time.
It's a coffee shop. It's a meeting place. It's on their website. Right? We want to be a community where people come. Right? So, I mean, the, I think the company has tried to respond. Um, I will say this for them. I don't know of any other instance where there's some big event like this where the CEO of a company flies literally across the country to meet two people to apologize. I don't think that happened in the United uh, situation where they dragged a man off the airplane, broke his face. Um, I assume he got some settlement and probably flies free on United for the rest of his life if he wants to. But I mean, there's a way, and, right, so there's a bunch of those. So it's just a bad situation. This is not representative of Philadelphia. Sorry for such a long answer, but it's a complicated thing. Yeah. One of the great things about not being in office anymore, I don't have to decide who speaks. <laughs> yeah, so even during uh, Obama 08 and Obama 12, yeah. there was a, essentially a hard cap of 70% voter turnout um, nationwide. Um, and so that means that 30% of people didn't show up, of the voting eligible population didn't show up. Right. That's even worse with with midterms, even worse with municipals, and mm -hmm. when you get to municipal primaries, it's pathetically low. Sure. How do we change that, fundamentally change that? Well, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, it's a combination of, you know, some people think that uh, their vote doesn't matter. Um, if a couple more people come out, uh, in Virginia recently, uh, the, I guess, I think it's called the General Assembly, uh, would be democratically controlled, as opposed, um, I think by now it's probably evident that I'm a Democrat, um, uh, as opposed to Republican, right? Because I think if you remember that election, uh, the one candidate, the last candidate whose votes were to be counted, was initially up by one vote. Then there was a tie. And then he lost by one vote. And the entire General Assembly flipped. So actually, votes do matter. Secondly, um, I think people are increasingly, because of either gridlock in DC or you know, other stuff they see at the local and state level, uh, feel that it doesn't matter. And you know, especially with state house races and congressional races, uh, where like, you know, only 3% of the folks lose or there's turnover, gerrymandering has really created an environment where, you know, as long as I keep, like, I don't know, 52% of my district happy, I can ignore everybody else. And it's structured in such a way that I only have to talk to these people over here. Right? So one more person coming, one more person coming, one more person coming. If the district is designed to your political advantage automatically, then again, pretty much if you can stay out of jail, uh, not steal money, you'll probably get reelected. Right? So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's frustrating uh, to people. But, you know, I still say we don't ask that much of folks from a citizenship standpoint. What do we ask you to do? Pay your taxes and come out two times a year and vote. <coughs> Stop worrying about what everybody else is doing or it doesn't matter. Because a whole lot of folks fought, and especially if you're a person of color, I mean, a whole lot of people fought, suffered, some died, beat, hoses, dogs, everything else that was hung from a tree, all of that and more, just so you have the right to vote. And so I think it's disrespectful 
to the folks who have gone before us. But, I mean, the last part of this is, I mean, at least as Democrats, I mean, we also need to put up better candidates in a, in a variety of races. I mean, you just can't throw anybody, any old body out there uh, and think that, well, you know, you don't have much alternative or yours is already locked in. We know you're going to vote Democrat. No, I mean, like, as you said, some people just decide not to vote, and then you lose, which is what happened in 2016. right behind you. Hi, uh, my name is Ben, and I just have kind of a theoretical question since we're at a university. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of people that spend their waking hours uh, in a city, a great city like Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, like in Boston, people might live in New Hampshire, they might <coughs> sleep in New Hampshire, they'll spend 12 or 16 hours of their waking day in Boston, but for economic reasons, they might schlep back up to yeah. New York, uh, New Hampshire. Same thing in New York City, people sure. might live across the, you know, the river in yeah. New Jersey. Um, but we define our voting rights based on where we live, mm -hmm. not where we work or we spend our day. And I'm just right. wondering, you know, as a mayor, how do you think about these constituencies that formally aren't part of the, the voting masses, but they're working there, they have economic interests, they effectively mentally think of themselves as yeah. Philadelphia folks, but maybe they're living in Camden or, or, or whatever. I'm just wondering. Yeah, or I, one of the five, yeah. four suburbs around us. It, um, exactly. I, uh, I viewed... I mean, cities, uh, in, well, you know, I have this whole theory about the rise of cities and where we're going, United Cities of America, and that, that theme. Um, but again, small, medium, or large, cities are usually the, you know, kind of the center of their universe. And so I always understood that when I stood behind a microphone, I wasn't just talking to Philadelphians. And, you know, then Al Gore created, you know, the internet and all that. So, I mean, it really, we're just, <laughs> has a way of kind of getting out. So, I mean, I always viewed myself more as the mayor of the region to some extent, um, which was really helpful that I spent so much time in Bucks, Chester, Delaware, Montgomery counties because when the recession hit, those folks understood if the city goes, we're taking you with us, whether you want to or not. I've got hundreds of thousands of people who live in Philly, work in the suburbs, and the same almost exact number who live in the suburbs and work in the city. And so, when we had our moment of severe crisis, and I'm up in Harrisburg begging legislators, most of whom think that Philly is like Sodom and Gomorrah on the Delaware, um, why should we give you authority to, you know, raise a sales tax or do something else? My suburban legislators, Republicans and Democrats, were telling their colleagues, you don't understand. If this doesn't happen, we're dead too, which is why it passed. So I think, um, I, I believe in a more regional approach uh, and that you just can't kind of isolate yourself often as the blue city and the sea of red and somehow think you're going to go it alone. That is really, if it ever worked, it, uh, it doesn't work now. And that's old school. Like, should not be a school anymore, right? I believe a regional approach. Thank you. Uh, my name's Will, uh, and I have a sort of an interesting question. It's my understanding that you I are... you predetermined that. Hey. <laughs> you're a DJ and singer in addition to a public servant. No, um, just a DJ. Okay, just DJ. Yes. I mean, I uh, read um, every now and then, but that's a whole other thing. As a musician myself and someone who's interested in public service, yeah. I'm interested in how uh, one influenced the other, yeah. um, and if any aspects of creativity or art artistry has influenced your work 
work in public service and then back towards art in terms of what yeah. public service can do to support the arts? Sure. Well, I think the biggest thing, so I used to work in a nightclub. Um, and uh, so I wrote a book, and it's, it's in the book. Um, my best friend from high school, uh, he and I went to college together. Uh, we went to Penn. And while we were in college, his father opened the first black-owned discotheque uh, in Philadelphia. Um, for really young people here, I'm sure you can Google discotheque. Um, and um, so we were like 19 years old, and we were working there. And we had house DJs, um, but before they came on, uh, my uh, friend and I, Robert, uh, played records uh, for people to kind of get the, get the night started. Uh, what I learned, uh, and working in the club was probably the best uh, of all the different jobs I've had. I haven't had that many, but um, it was probably the best training for being there. Um, for a couple of reasons. A, a um, you know, you learn that it's not a party unless everybody's having a good time. B, I shook a lot of hands. I met a lot of people. I had to remember a lot of folks and often had to negotiate uh, from time to time with maybe some people bigger than me that I had to throw out of the place. As mayor, I shook a lot of hands. I met a lot of people. I had to remember a lot of names. And every now and then, I had to throw some people out of my office um, nicely. Um, but I also uh, learned about just how to engage with people um, and the importance, uh, quite frankly, of art. So a lot of people talk about STEAM. I like to, uh, STEM, I like to talk about STEAM um, because uh, arts, uh, art and culture in Philadelphia is like the fourth largest industry uh, in our city. Uh, it's about creativity. It's about young people. Uh, it's about having a good time. Uh, and I mean, not just you know, parties and events, but the liveliness of the city. Um, and so that has stuck with me. Uh, and you know, I've done you know any number of events and activities uh, with uh, with uh, within the arts with artists. Uh, we promoted ourselves, uh, quite honestly, as the big city that does big events well. Uh, when people like Jay Z are trying to figure out you know where to put Made in America, he chose Philadelphia. Um, we've probably had now. This will definitely get me in trouble because um, this long historical battle about you know birthplace of freedom, liberty, and democracy, which of course is Philadelphia, um, based on the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Um, so I mean, where else would you celebrate the Fourth of July? But you know, Philadelphia. Um, so we have one of the bigger celebrations in the country. So uh, all all of that experience from uh, you know late teens, latest teen. 19, uh, into my 20s, uh, certainly had an influence and an impact uh, on, uh, on my service. You established that there were some issues as mayor you felt you didn't always have the most control over. And I'm wondering, uh, were you satisfied with the way the state of Pennsylvania administered transportation issues into the city and SEPTA and those sort of things? Uh, I wasn't for a long time. Um, uh, certainly things toward the, if I'm remembering correctly, I think toward the tail end of my tenure is when they finally, uh, the General Assembly and the governor finally kind of got on the same page uh, with an actual funding formula, dedicated funding, which uh, that was the theme, dedicated funding formula for SEPTA. Um, uh, the management there, I think, took a number of steps. We had a great partnership with them for a variety of reasons. You know, ridership was up. We finally got, you know, the, the key card pass thing that seemed to kind of take forever. Um, there's still a great need uh, for a significant investment uh, in our mass transit system. But, you know, I mean, it is a regional system, uh, five different modes of transportation. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think, as with most transit systems, still a lot more work to do. 
Um, and lastly, um, you know, there are still some neighborhoods that are underserved uh, in, um, in Philadelphia and in the region. Absolutely, yeah. Um, one, of the other, one of the things that we tried to promote uh, to kind of deal with that was more transit-oriented development. Uh, we have a lot of, I mean, SEPTA owns a lot of real estate. SEPTA is the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority. Um, owns a ton of real estate. And we tried to direct some projects, uh, developments that were specific uh, to uh, our uh, transit stations and along the Broad Street line and the um, elevated uh, train. Thank you. So I ask you a question regarding the B team that you spoke about earlier, mm -hmm. specifically regarding the maybe your public works department and also your police. Yeah. Uh, how did you main, how did you make your, your public works department more efficient in terms of being motivated to do something that, as you said, they're going to be there before you became the mayor and certainly be yeah. there after you became the mayor? And then regarding your uh, police department, how did you maintain their confidence when it came to accountability? Because I'm sure at some point there's always that friction uh, in, in terms of what public accountability looks like and what confidence yeah, looks like. Sure. Um, on the kind of the general operations, um, what I tried to do, and certainly what our managers also sought to do, uh, we tried to really make uh, make it clearer to the public employees the connection between their work and its benefit to the city. And so when we did something like, you know, I mean, this will make your eyes glaze over, but I mean, I, pe people like me get excited about, you know, significant reform of the zoning code, right? I mean, that, I mean, that would. I mean, I could put you to sleep in five minutes on that, right? But it's really critically important to economic development. Um, our zoning code was uh, Byzantine, outdated, uh, outmoded, uh, not built for speed, uh, and most people had to hire a lawyer at four to six hundred dollars an hour uh, just to explain it to them. Um, I would say slightly facetiously that you know I thought people should be able to build their project within their own lifetime. And not have to pass it down to their children, right? It, it, it just took a long time. And at the same time, that community people have rights as well, and that uh, they should not get run over uh, by, you know, big developers with big money or big lawyers, whatever the case may be. Not opposed to any of those folks. We need both. But every piece of ground doesn't have to have a building on it, and every old building is not historic. It's just old. So I wanted folks to understand that 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 set of plans, so we did a couple things. Historically, you know, you want to develop something. You go to this department to get this stamp of approval. You could then, then from there, you go to this one, to this one, to this one, to this one. I said, well, you know, in an age of computers and, and all kinds of stuff, how about if we send the plans to all the respective departments at the same time? How about if they, for big projects, how about if they all sat around a table with the development folks and went over all the different pieces because it would also be a little bit of gotcha, right? I got my approval here, then let me go over here, then let me go over here, and then this agency over here would see something and say, you know, by the way, we need you to come back. Well, in the epitome of time is money, time is money. Every day someone's not building something, they are carrying a variety of costs and driving up the cost of that development. And so I wanted our public employees to understand a couple fundamental truths. Every plan on your desk, every project that you might review, represents economic development, also known as a job, and revenues for the city. Unlike Washington, we don't print the money. 
we have what we have. But if we had more of it, maybe we'd be able to invest more in your children's education. Maybe we'd be able to do more after-school programs. Maybe, at contract time, we'd actually have some money for you. Right? So don't cut any corners. Speed kills. Take your time, but do it efficiently and get those plans off your desk. Because what I want you to do when you leave work today and one day you see that building, you should be telling your kids, I worked on the plans for that great building here in our city, and people are working as a result of what I did. And so what we're really trying to do is instill a sense of pride in the work. You're not just some nameless, faceless person that's stamping plans all day long. It actually has value and it has meaning to a lot of people. On the police side, I mean, you know, look, Philly, New York, Chattanooga, pick a sound. At any given moment, anything can go wrong. Gentleman asked me about, I mean, but for the two guys being relatively calm, I mean, they were pretty calm in the whole scheme of things, that could have gone sideways very quickly. Any city, no matter how well-trained the officers are, Last count, in my head, 6,325 police officers. I can assure you everyone is not doing everything right every moment of every shift of every day. And even when you do, sometimes things get screwed up. I thought it was a gun. He was moving. I wasn't sure. Fear for my life. I shot. Could all be right. Community might not exactly see it that way. And then we get into, oh, well, he's got five complaints against him, this, that, and the other thing, right? So you got that. Flip side, May 3rd, 2008. I'm sitting in my office in City Hall, and between events, we get a call. Police officer's been shot. No, no other information. I hang out for a little bit. Officer shot, you need to get to the hospital. Blaze up Broad Street, Temple University. Officer comes on the scene of a robbery gone bad. It's like a little bank kind of place inside a supermarket. Three guys. One guy shoots the officer with an AK-47, nearly rips his arm off his shoulder. One bad guy down, one in custody, one in the wind. I've now got my first officer shot. I'm five months in office. He died. And we still got one who got away. So the police are pretty upset. The citizens are pretty upset. The family is devastated. And you're the brand new mayor. So I've seen both sides of this. I lost eight police officers killed in the line of duty during my eight years, four in the first year. So there's a lot of accountability all the way around the table. I also had 331 citizens killed. They were not shot by police officers. They were shot by fellow citizens. Right. So we've got citizens doing things that they shouldn't be doing. We've got officers who sometimes discharge when they shouldn't, but they're worried about getting shot because they want to go home too. Right. So again, there's a lot of different messages that you have to try to communicate, and citizens are not always right, and the officers are not always right. But here's one fact for you. In most jurisdictions, the overwhelming majority of police officers, in the course of their entire career, will never take their gun out of their holster while they're working. And even fewer actually fire. But it happens. And sometimes the shooting is bad. And sometimes they get shot. So 
I think the accountability part is being honest with the public. Um, if it's a bad shooting, at some point in time after an investigation, you have to say, that was not right, and I mean, you have to cut your ties and, you know. But if the officer was justified, then you have to be strong enough to say, you know, it's unfortunate that the citizen was shot or died, but here's a full array of circumstances. It was fully investigated, and it was a justified shooting. You don't make a lot of friends in this business. Just a quick follow-up. How do you decide when to make that statement by wait for all the information and details to come out? There's, there's benefits, there's also risk to either action. Sure. Um, the longer you wait, so, you know, first rule in politics generally is, you know, um, define yourself before someone does it for you. And in that situation, it's, you know, what's, what, is, what is the story? I mean, not a story. What is the story? What are the facts? The problem is, just like in the case that the gentleman mentioned to me, more often times than not, the first set of information you get in any of those situations is not accurate. It will change. And so what you have to deal with is whatever you said the first day needs to be consistent with what you say on the 10th day. And the public and the press figure out really early and quickly if there's a difference between the two. So you do have to wait a little while and take the beating that comes with not saying anything. Because the value of being right is more important than the value of speed. Just wait. Be patient. Get up into the 90 plus percent range of accuracy. There'll always be a little bit, but you gotta have the basic story right. My name is Anna. Um, I was just wondering, so you were talking about, you. it sounds like you did a lot of restructuring of the city government when you yeah. came in. But it also sounds like you had kind of a special circumstance with like the indictments in the previous administration and just like a general need, like a feeling that there was a need for change. Do you feel like that gave you additional license to do the amount of restructuring that you did? And I guess would you have any advice for someone coming in where the previous administration was maybe viewed as more trustworthy? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess a couple of things. I mean, the, the first piece of license to make any of those changes is the fact that, I mean, I won. Right? So, you know, I mean, it's your thing. Um, but more importantly, you know, as, as, as David, and every time I hear that, I, I kind of have to laugh when, you know, uh, as part of the intro, you know, he served 15 years on city council. I mean, it actually sounds like a sentence. Um, you know, like I was doing a 10 to 15 bid you know, in city council. Um, you know, I, I mean, I tried to, even before that, I, 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 I tried to be a student of government. I tried to really understand not just Philadelphia, but, you know, a bunch of other places. And what works, what doesn't work, literally. Uh, and having almost 15 years on city council, I got to kind of see it, at least from that lens and that perspective. They're very different jobs. Being a legislator is, is a great job, and I loved it. But being an executive is really something else. I mean, you are, I mean, and it's also, it's all on you. Um, so, but when you run as a reformer, and you're going to change the government, and literally pledge you're going to clean the place up, it does require, I mean, other, if it, I mean, if you, I, I have this one quote. I, you know, I didn't run for mayor 
in order to maintain the status quo. I mean, people knew change was coming. They just didn't know what it was. Right? And it wasn't change for the sake of change. But, I mean, again, we explained to the public when we developed our new org chart, you know, we had a press conference about it. And, th like, this is why we're doing what it is that we're doing. And we had other people complaining, well, that's not what the Home Rule Charter says. I said, well, you know, it's really interesting. So, like, I won, and this is what we're doing. Um, but because of some previous challenges, yes, we had even additional license to do some other things. And it's really hard to be against more ethics in government. I mean, I know, you know, uh, uh, without naming names at, at, <laughs> at one point, because uh, that was like a big part of my whole thing in city council. Um, and at one point, one of my former colleagues said, you know, we're all ethics out. Yeah, we're just really done <laughs> with that whole agenda. We're, like, <laughs> we're, we're finished with that. Uh, well, maybe not exactly, right? So, uh, because you're never done with ethics, right? I mean, somebody's probably doing something right now in Boston government, in Philly government, in Chicago government. And people concoct all kinds of schemes, no matter what rules and regulations you put in place. We had a guy in the water department who was a purchaser or procurement officer who, and we only knew this because we got a tip, but he was over-ordering toner cartridges. I mean, like a fairly sizable more than we needed. And we didn't even know it until someone tipped us off. And there was an investigation. He was under surveillance for a while. Anyway, he was selling them personally to a company in Arkansas. I, I, I mean, I buy mine at Staples, but I mean, you know, but apparently, I guess he had a much cheaper price. I mean, to the tune of $600,000 loss to the city government, toner cartridge. He went to prison. The husband and wife and the company went to prison, and we got and we made them pay the six hundred thousand dollars back because our folks were focused on that issue and I tried to send a message throughout the entire government: this kind of stuff will not be tolerated. But it doesn't mean that everybody's doing everything that they're supposed to do every day. People are always coming up with with different schemes, and we would publicize when people got in trouble, got fired, went to jail, whatever the case may be, again, to reinforce uh, to the public employees and the public. I mean, I made numerous speeches reminding the public that they should stop trying to corrupt our employees. I mean, just to even have to say that is What you know, do you mean? So, like, no, no tips to your garbage men, that kind of thing? Yeah, they really got pissed off about that. Um, <laughs> the, uh, Amy Carlin, who's our uh, inspector general, and Joan Markman, who's my first Chief Integrity Officer, and unfortunately uh, passed away, they, they would go out to the sanitation yards at like 5 o'clock in the morning. And in one famous episode, they were literally both standing on the back of a sanitation truck. Uh, Amy is like my mom's size, like about 4'10", 4'11". Uh, Joan, not much taller. And they tried to explain to the folks at the yard, like, you can't take tips. You know, and Philadelphia, again, I don't know, I don't know as much about Boston culture. I mean, Christmas time, Thanksgiving, I mean, we're talking about money, we're talking about liquor, we're talking about cakes, we're talking about pot, I mean, all kinds of stuff, but mostly money, because um, you've been really good to us this year. And you know, So they tried to explain to them, like, you're not a hostess in a restaurant, right? There's no tips. You get a paycheck, that's it. They got literally almost booed out of the place. I mean, they were really, really pissed off. Um, but I think we changed some of the culture. And, um, 
you know, and, and I think they ultimately came to be respected. But yeah, I mean, just trying to help people understand. You got one paycheck, and that's it. There's no extra here. So I think we have time for one or two more. So there's one. Hi, thanks for being here. I wanted to come back to a point you made earlier about what we ask of citizens. And we've talked a lot about um, transportation and space and, and safety. And as someone who's studying urban planning here, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit briefly to some of the innovative things that Philadelphia is doing, like the um, Citizens Planning Institute. Um, and uh, anything you want to add about urban planning to this conversation? Okay. Well, clearly you already stole one of my things because you mentioned it. Um, is that your dog? Okay. All right. Is this a child prodigy or <laughs> she's in college already? She's, she's part of the administration. <laughs> okay. okay. Hello. I, look, I got to keep everybody happy. Um, so, yeah, uh, we created a, a citizens uh, planning uh, group. We thought that. I mean, we were, you know, citizen input. People wanted to know more. We were also planning to change the zoning code. And people want to know what's going on in their neighborhood. Um, and so you can get a certification in, uh, the, from this uh, citizen planning organization. I, at least when I was in office, always oversubscribed. People were really interested. I mean, we thought, like, who's, who is possibly going to show up, you know, for this? Little did we know. Um, public hearings. Uh, uh, and all of our hearings are televised uh, in, uh, in Philadelphia uh, on the government access channel. I'm stunned at how many people actually watch. Uh, so, I mean, I only watch it because I had to. I mean, <laughs> people watch it because they want to. Um, uh, on the transportation side, um, you know, we were late uh, to, the, um, to the bike share uh, program. Uh, and actually, the person who is most responsible one of the two people most responsible for bike share is actually here uh, at, uh, at Harvard, uh, finishing up, uh, Catherine Gajewski. Um, but we were the first, because we were later, uh, we're, we're also the first bike share uh, system in the United States of America that did not require a credit card, uh, because we got a huge grant from a foundation that allowed us to then place our bikes, which was my primary focus and goal, is that it would not just be a downtown bike share program, that we wanted equity and we wanted it out in neighborhoods where black, white, Latino, Asian, wherever you are, you should pretty much be able to access, uh, a, um, access a bike. I talked earlier about uh, the zoning code, um, and we had not um, kind of overhauled our city plan in about 50 years. Um, so we did that, new waterfront plan. I mean, we really, I made numerous speeches that planning matters, zoning matters, uh, uh, design matters. Uh, and so again, I, I still draw stick people. I have no artistic ability whatsoever, but I know that these things are critically important to a well-planned city. Uh, we sent Philadelphia down the path of complete streets. Uh, we dealt with stormwater management. Uh, issues and the like. I mean, again, all about trying to enhance uh, the uh, living experience and certainly the mobility of people uh, in uh, in the city of Philadelphia. Cities are on the rise. I mean, they. I mean, it, they're the places of innovation. It actually, in my view, is the only level of government that really works. Uh, and you know, well, you can hate on whatever city you're you're from, uh, but you know, and I know we're running out of time. But I, I just I'll put it to you this way. You wake up in the morning, you know, brush your teeth, take a shower. You just had an experience with your water department. 
you come outside, uh, get in your car, uh, more than likely the traffic signals are, are working at your streets department. Uh, hopefully the roads are in fairly decent shape, the same. Uh, you call 911, police and fire. I mean, th there are a series of experiences that almost all citizens have at some level in the course of their day that you are actively, directly engaged with your local government. And we, of course, take all of that for granted. Uh, it's just, it's all the stuff that happens. You know, my most recent experience with the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I just got my driver's license renewed the other day. That, that I haven't had any contact with the state in four years, right? And I wouldn't even know what to ask the federal government for, right? I mean, like, um, one day maybe hopefully they'll, like, send me a, a, a Social Security check if it's still in existence. Um, and so it is a day-to-day -day personal experience that people have. When I left Philadelphia this morning, I put my bag of trash out. I feel significantly confident that if I were going home tonight, it would be gone. Because that's what we do. And the government's run. And I didn't invent trash pickup. I didn't invent snow removal. These are the things that are standards that are built in to the operations of the place. And I think our jobs and responsibility is every time you have this chance, it's like a running a, uh, a, a relay race. You know, I had my eight years, I passed the baton on. You should set new standards, set a higher level, and then the next person builds on top of that. That's what local governance is, I think, is really all about. Uh, it's where young people are, it's where the colleges and universities are for the most part, it's where companies now want to be, uh, and we're seeing that kind of uh, explosive activity all across the United States of America and, quite frankly, around the world. So for the, for the people in this room that want to contribute to that, right? to, to go off and to have the next portion of their career or the entirety of their career in city right. government, what would, you, what would you advise them now? A couple things. Uh, I was talking earlier. Um, uh, so on the back of my business cards uh, when I was in office, uh, I had uh, printed, uh, and I referred to it on that inaugural speech, the first one, um, I, I want to, uh, amongst all your other studies, uh, I'd really any of you thinking about going into public service or any kind of service, uh, read or reread the Athenian Oath. The Athenian Oath, of course, was what the young people of Athens, uh, you had to take this, memorize this oath, take this oath to become a citizen of a city. And there are a lot of things in there and a variety of versions, uh, but I think the one part that doesn't change is that uh, your duty and responsibility is to turn over the city better and more beautiful than you found it when you arrived. And if whenever my day comes or whenever someone writes anything, you know, relatively serious about me, um, if, if that were the thing that anyone said, I would consider that the most successful aspect of any public service. That you're committed to it, that you go into it for the right reason, whether elected or appointed, uh, that you understand what your role and your mission is, uh, and that you serve citizens uh, with sincerity. Uh, the oath that I took, uh, whether in council or mayor, they all start out the same way, uh, that you will uphold the Constitution of the United States, that you will uphold the, in Pennsylvania, the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, that you will uphold the Philadelphia Home Rule Charter. Yeah, got all that, I can do all that. I'm gonna do that anyway. But it's that last line. It says, and I will discharge the duties of my office with fidelity, I think is the most important component. 
do the job, do it well, give it everything that you have, and the, the personal feeling that you will get, the psychic benefit of helping to improve the quality of life for someone else. You can't spend it in a supermarket. It's hard to explain, but you know it when you feel it. And in public service, you get, uh, it's kind of like the MBA, you, you, get, you get a new 24 every day to do the same thing. I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing here. And even out of office, um, it's why I do now uh, the, any number of things that, uh, that I get to do and work with David and, and a number of others and work with mayors all across the United States of America. So I'm a recovering public servant, um, but uh, I'm certainly having a ball. Well, Mayor thank Michael you. Nutter, thank you so much for your time today. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.